Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is engagement and proxy voting, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jamie Kramer, Global Head of Strategic Product Management and ESG Lead for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Rob Hardy, Head of Corporate Governance for EMEA Region, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Eileen Cohen, Chair of North America Governance Committee and Client Portfolio Manager, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And Akiko Amori, Investment Director for Japan, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're really glad to be here. Now, thanks for giving me the chance to join you. Today, we're going to discuss active ownership, both engagement and proxy voting. So the first question I'm going to start with is, Eileen, what does it mean to be an active owner? So for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, active ownership is the uh, research that we do to assess the companies that we want to own in our portfolios. That means a view of future cash flows and the strategic issues of the business. But in addition to that, active ownership is also taking into consideration how the company is structured and its governance practices. That is part of the investment view as well as the risk assessment of the company we're investing in. Great. Rob, what does it mean for you? At its most basic, it's it's quite simply, it's holding the managers of the companies we own on our clients' behalf to, 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 to the account of their owners, the shareholders, you know, rather than them making sure they they aren't committing egregious practices like paying themselves too much or, or, or running the business in a way that isn't appropriate for the long-term best interests of our clients. I guess I uh, second everything that my colleagues have said, but I'd also like to add that it's also uh, feeding back to companies what we think about them. So uh, we're not just sort of passively receiving information from them. We actively sort of tell them what we think and provide feedback, be it good or bad, so that we can have a conversation about the issues that we think are relevant to the companies that we're invested in. Yeah, it's an ongoing cycle, right? Yes, it is an ongoing cycle. So, Rob, Akiko just mentioned um, talking to the companies and giving them our feedback. Can you just share with us the difference between or the connection between engagement and proxy voting? Sure, absolutely. And it's part of the same ongoing cycle, right? We are, we are all of us analyzing the ES&G risks in the portfolios as we see them. You know, when we think we find the names with above average exposures, that's our long list for engagement. Those are the names we want to meet, understand the issues, promote some best practice, understand why they do things the way they do. Then we have the active use of our proxy votes, which is all investor-led here, uh, and lastly, reporting back to our clients. I guess the difference, as we said, is the engagement piece is ongoing and is happening all the time. But once a year, we get this annual check-in where we can we can see and we can express our views in a very, very explicit way at the shareholder meetings. It's a carrot and stick approach, essentially. Carrot and stick. Which one's the carrot and which one's the stick? Well, I guess, look, the proxy votes, the use of proxy votes, it's still the most immediate tool available to us as investors to express our views. If we don't like the stock plan, we can vote against it. You know, if we don't like the, the individual directors, we can withhold our votes as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's still the most direct tool in the box to influence company managements. The engagement stuff is an ongoing discussion about understanding the risks, promoting best practice, uh, and getting our views, as Akiko said, you know, letting companies understand our position on, on companies and the strategy. And you mentioned ESG, which is, of course, environmental, social and governance. 
it's important for everyone listening to note that all three, Rob, Eileen, and Akiko, have been practicing and implementing our engagement proxy voting for years. Eileen, can you share with us with engagement what types of issues you focus on and maybe the breakdown between governance and then environmental and social? Sure. You know, the engagement discussions we have with companies are very company-specific, but two very key issues that we focus on on a consistent basis are board and the board structure as well as compensation. I want to just focus on board because that is probably the most important tool that shareholders have to vote and weigh their opinion. Is We get a direct vote into who the board directors are, Their key responsibility is to hire the CEO. If there is an issue with the company, we can and have influence over the board in terms of their practices. We also want to understand how the board self-assesses its own effectiveness in uh, overseeing the CEO and the strategy of the company. So we have um, a very key area of um, board responsibility as shareholders. Uh, With regard to compensation, That is another way of expressing our view as to how effective the CEO has been executing his or her job over the last year or two, and how the board, particularly the chair of the comp committee, has overseen that process. So two very powerful tools of engagement and voting that could influence the outcomes. And could maybe you or Rob or Akiko, the hot topic is the um, in some regions this is different, but the split between the chairman and CEO Do you have any um, thoughts of that? It's obviously a company-by-company decision when we cast our vote. Maybe I'll take that in the first instance. You know, as we all know, standards of governance and traditions vary around the world. Uh, And some markets have a tradition of combining the chairman and CEO roles. And you can think of the U.S. and France Uh, and others have a tradition of keeping them separate. I think what we look for, the important thing is there's sufficient weight of independent opinion around the boardroom table to hold the executives to account. Uh, And that's what you focus on. And as long as we see that, we are are less concerned about individual structures. Is that fair, Eileen? Yeah, I, I, you know, that's a great point. I would make an observation from the U.S. perspective. We haven't seen any uh, empirical evidence to suggest that there is a better performance for one structure versus the other. In the U.S., uh, many companies are instituting a lead director on the board if the role of CEO and chairman are combined in one individual. In the U.S., we find that the lead director role and this person has to be independent, has requisite duties to lead the board and set agendas away from the CEO, we find that that structure works pretty well. So there is continued pressure. It is one of the ballot items that keeps coming up in annual meetings. But we find that we always view it case by case in any event. You had mentioned before, Rob, that this engagement, um, active ownership, is is investor-led. And you all three of you sit within the investor teams. Can you discuss how you interact, how you work with our research analyst in this act of ownership, whether it's engagement or proxy voting? This whole process has to be meaningful for our investors and consistent for our clients. It's a very powerful thing that the teams sit and live day to day with the with the analysts and portfolio managers. I always get nervous when when ESG and governance people live in operations teams or compliance teams. You know, this is part of the way we do business. The discussions are ongoing. You know, we will join 
the many hundreds of one-on-ones that are going on all of the time, and we will ask questions if it's something we haven't seen before or an issue we want to raise. That will sometimes kick off a separate discussion with a compensation committee chair or a nominations committee chair or environmental specialists where they exist. Uh, And it really is an ongoing process of, of raising issues, trying to understand the responses and making sure we're capturing those risks and insights in our investment process. In the U.S., this is, I think, a unique position for us on the governance side at J.P. Morgan because we are all reporting through the investment teams. So when we do engagement with companies, our investors are invited to participate. And particularly in the U.S., when a CEO is visiting on the investment side, I always sit in on the meeting uh, because it's always helpful to hear the CEO talk about strategy because that will be used by me when I get to have to consider the compensation vote for that CEO at the at some point in the year. So it's a very integrated process. Sounds like you have a lot of power. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, on paper, probably, yes. Um, but, you know, it's amazing how many calls we do get from folks who feel that it is important more and more to engage, particularly from board directors, more than ever before. Akiko, I'm going to move to um, Tokyo. One of the trends that we're seeing in the Asian market is an emergence of stewardship codes. And some of the large pensions in Japan have become quite involved and vocal on the need for integration of ESG. Can you talk about the differences and similarities of best practices that you see in uh, Japan or in Asia versus perhaps Europe or the U.S.? Sure. And uh, I think one thing is very clear, and that was the introduction of the stewardship code back in 2014 in Japan has really made, in a way, our lives more difficult, but also easier. And uh, a also due to the introduction of the Corporate Governance Code in Japan. And that means the whole engagement uh, for really long-term growth of the companies who are invested in. We're not just sort of doing engagement to tick the box, but I think the Stewardship Code makes it clear that we're doing it with a long-term, medium-term focus to really enhance corporate value. And the dialogue has become, in a way, easier, or perhaps I should say deeper as a result. And uh, we are really focusing on what we think of are the strategic issues to do with the companies that we are invested in. And we're not just looking at the next quarter's earnings and just reacting to something that's just happened overnight. So it really enables both all parties to take a longer term view. And I guess in terms of regional differences, we were later in uh, Asia into uh, introducing things like the stewardship codes, but it's happening throughout the region. So I think Japan was early in 2014, but we have been followed by other nations in uh, Asia, such as Malaysia and Hong Kong and other countries. And I would say that a lot of the uh, discussions that we have are similar to uh, the conversations that go take place in the States or in Europe, but they're still heavily dominated by governance issues. We still have relatively few conversations on compensation because we really don't yet have that great level of disclosure on compensation. It's happening, but it's still early days. So a lot of the dialogue still tends to... Uh, f- focus heavily on the traditional governance areas. But, for example, uh, we were just looking at the um, 
share plans of one of our companies, and it was designed in a pretty amateurish way. So I think we let them know that uh, what we thought about their plans. So it's early days, but you've got to start somewhere. So I think we're hopeful that we will begin to have a dialogue on compensation too going forward. And that's important feedback for all of those companies to, 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 to Eileen's earlier point. You know, uh, if we can engage and help influence and give our feedback further upstream, that avoids some of these high-profile fights that we get at shareholder meetings uh, when, when you, you know, these issues flare up. And it's also important to remember that uh, uh, although Akiko's right that uh, from, a, from a coding standpoint, Japan and Asia have been relatively late to the party, you know, this is something that JP Morgan has been doing in Asia for a long, long time. I don't know if it's good or bad now that some of our competition are catching up, uh, but... Uh, So on that point, Eileen, we've had a governance uh, proxy committee in the U.S. since the early 90s, and you clearly have been leading this effort for us since early 90s? Yeah. Uh, Well, about for the 15 years I've been here. So my question is, as I have been learning all about engagement and proxy voting, the U.S., we don't have a stewardship code. We don't, but we have quite a number of regulatory and oversight uh, rules and regs that uh, influence how companies operate. So, for example, the SEC has very clear disclosure requirements for all publicly listed companies. In addition, the stock exchange listing rules, which follow the SEC guide, provide rules about how boards of directors need to be uh, comprised They also have rules about how controlled companies, that is, companies that have an investor that owns more than 50% of the shares, how they have to design their, uh, not only their board, but the committees of their boards. In addition, every company that incorporates in the United States incorporates by a state, and each state has a sense of its own charter and bylaws, which companies will operate it in, and those are the rules of the road for how companies operate with their shareholders. So we have quite a bit of oversight already. But within all of that, we do give companies through the state charter bylaw rules and regs a lot of flexibility in terms of how they would like to operate the company and its shareholder communication. So we do have quite a bit of oversight to earlier question. Remember that uh, the SEC and even the UK Stewardship Code came out of uh, severe periods of crises of confidence. So we were somewhat early, we were very early in that process, and obviously the UK was too in the early 80s following a number of scandals there. We've observed that tech companies have very large ownership by the founders. How does that impact our decision to own um, when they IPO? And that's a great question. It's not even just tech. It's almost any IPO, whether it's large or small cap. So in many cases, the private equity investor is still the majority shareholder. So when these companies go public, they have a quite embedded shareholder rights already built into the IPO, many of which are not shareholder-friendly to the minority shareholder, which would be us if we were to invest in the company. So when we are considering an IPO, we do consider the governance structure as a risk factor But we also mirror that with our investment horizon as well. Most of the private equity investors are there for another at least seven years. And so 
you have to have tremendous confidence in the management that you're investing alongside with this management team and that everyone is aligned for the right reasons. But post that period of time, the governance structures could come back and haunt you. And Eileen's quite right, and it gets even worse in global, where you know deviations from the sort of one share, one vote principle are pretty common. You get differential share classes are very, co- very common in the Nordics. In France, if you keep your shares for two years, you get double votes. Uh, we also see a tradition uh, in Europe and in Asia uh, of state-owned companies and controlling family or, or, or controlling shareholders. And that's something you need to be aware of when you're a minority shareholder. And maybe the shareholder rights are not as strong and the rule of law is not as strong as what we're used to in, in, in Western markets. Oh, Kiko, do you have any views on that? Uh, I think you've uh, articulated the issues that are prevalent in Asia, the state ownership and family ownership. Uh, it's definitely something we are very aware of when we engage. But a lot of the traditional bank shareholdings are unwinding now. It's often the case that overseas shareholders are the largest constituency these days in Japanese companies. That's uh, also clear. I think in Japan specifically, it was very well known that there was this scheme whereby the banks held the shares of many corporates and vice versa. The corporates were big shareholders and banks. But I think really, uh, again, this is where things like the Corporate Governance Code has been helpful in that it, it makes it clear that companies need to articulate rationally why they have shareholdings in other companies. And quite often, it's difficult to come up with a rational explanation, which means we have seen unwinding of these holdings. So it's a sort of healthier, uh, more level playing ground. But I'd be, again, it'll be, uh, I'd be uh, naive to think that it's been completely a historical issue. It's still something that we look at in specific instances. Akiko, you mentioned a little bit earlier how in Japan engagement has been evolving. Can you talk a little bit about Rob, how engagement has evolved in your area of the world? Sure. I mean, I I like to joke that when I first started asking these kinds of questions in one-on-one meetings in the late 90s, the room used to literally go quiet. You know, who the heck is this guy? What's he doing here? I think what has changed is that every chairman and CEO we see these days is expecting these kinds of questions from their shareholders, and they're equipped to answer them. And, and, And that shows us actually how far we've come. I guess the single biggest takeaway is this stuff is constantly evolving. There are always new things coming along that our clients care about or our regulators care about or broader society cares about. So it's constantly evolving and constantly morphing into something new. Akiko, can you share with us how companies in your region view engagement? Sure, because uh, one of the large asset owners in Japan actually conducted a survey of the companies to see how they thought Uh, we, the institutional investment community, were performing in terms of engagement. And uh, I think they, in their sort of feedback, they were saying that investors are asking more longer term questions, which they welcomed. But they also highlighted the fact that a lot of uh, investors were not necessarily using all the material that companies are making available. And by that, I think they mean they produce materials such as integrated reports, various types of specialist disclosure. And I think they felt if some of their disclosures were not useful, they would like to hear that perhaps it's not really helpful. But they are producing these materials and they would hope that we can at least be utilizing them and letting them know what we feel about their output. 
And I think other uh, comments that companies were making is that they are very happy to hear feedback, which is critical. They just want well-educated investors engaging with them and asking hard questions. Now, that is not the issue, but I think what they find difficult is investors who come with uh, limited preparation. So that was their biggest uh, concern. And, and in 2016, approximately, how many companies did we engage with? Uh, in the U.S., we, we probably spoke or met with in person about 400 companies. And again, that doesn't include all the uh, meetings that my team or myself would have sat in with CEOs that came in to visit with us. Right, and it will be about 200 in, in London, uh, and again, not counting the many hundreds of one-on-ones that are happening all of the time. We don't do as many meetings in Japan, but I also do have about 40 to 50 specialist governance or ESG meetings with corporates, on top of which, as Eileen and Rob have said, the investors have many, many meetings, some of which I do join as well. So moving on from engagement to proxy voting, um, Eileen, can you share with us what the purpose of proxy voting is, how often we proxy vote, and is it mandatory? So proxy voting has been around for a very long period of time, and it's the way that shareholders get to vote on, again, the board of directors whose main responsibility is to hire the CEO. Uh, So that is a shareholder right. And is it mandatory? There isn't a rule or reg that says you have to vote, but the Department of Labor has come out, as many of our audience will know, that this is a fiduciary obligation. So in the U.S., as investors and investment managers – As fiduciaries, we are obligated under DOL to vote our shares. So we do consider that we should vote every share. We don't abstain in the United States. Uh, So everything does get voted. You're right. As Eileen says, I mean, you know, voting rights are clearly an asset, and we are the asset manager. The clue is in the title. It's our duty to represent our our clients' best interests all the time. The proxies, sometimes when you get into, into more esoteric markets overseas, there are sometimes technical reasons why we may not vote actively in certain markets. Postal proxy voting like you're used to uh, in the UK and the US is not allowed. So you've got to send a local attorney in markets like Brazil to go and vote in person. That requires our clients to maintain expensive power of attorney documentation. And sometimes our clients decide that, uh, that it's not worth the additional costs. In a few other markets worldwide, we still have a tradition of share blocking. That comes from markets with a tradition of bearer shares, where if you tender the shares to to vote the stock, you're temporarily immobilized from trading. And sometimes, so there's an extra dimension there, not just how should we vote to represent our clients' best interest, but are our clients' best interests served by not voting this particular time so we can retain the ability to trade. So there are a few pits and traps out there. And of course, lastly, if there's a conflict of interest, that's an important piece. You know, Eileen and Akiko and I, our teams will step out of the loop uh, if there is an identified conflict in a vote and we'll, we'll we'll delegate that vote in those instances to an independent third party. Are there guidelines or principles that you would suggest Um, as best practices for proxy voting? Well, we do publish every year and put together the regional guidelines into one global document. Uh, I'm interesting more and more over the years, companies reference that document before they call me to engage. They know exactly from a U.S. perspective how we view some of the key issues we're going to be asked to vote on. Not surprising, many of the issues in the document 
uh, lay out a case-by-case situation, but some of the basic principles that we agreed to here in J.P. Morgan Asset Management are outlined in that document. Rob? Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess, as Eileen mentioned, we do run regional voting policies uh, the, the trick, the issue with, over, with international is standards of governance vary, right? So the international guidelines tend to be principles-based rather than rules-based. We have a lot of differing traditions around board independence and shareholder rights and whether chairman and CEOs combined or whether it's separate. Uh, so we try to write the, the international guidelines around general principles like transparency and board independence and alignment of compensation and communication with the market rather than sort of writing up writing a rule book. But other than that, there are, you know, they're entirely consistent. There are no contradictions in our guidelines. We're just trying to apply them in a broad range of markets where standards of governance do sometimes vary. We have a global proxy committee and we have regional proxy committees. Who sits on these committees? What makes up a well-functioning uh, committee? And what are the differences? Well, in the U.S., we've had a practice of having a committee of about uh, 13 individuals. Always good to have an odd number, even on a board of directors. That gives you a clear, uh, able to have a majority vote on an issue. But in the U.S., we have representatives from compliance, legal, and risk, as well as the investment teams. So we want a broad set of opinions on the governance aspects because some of these issues are regulatory in nature as well as investment in nature. And it's the similar approach for the regional committees here in London and Asia also. You know, it's comprised of senior analysts and, uh, and portfolio managers uh, who've been working in this environment for a long time. They are a helpful sounding board. They own the policy uh, and they also act as a kind of supreme court if you want to escalate an issue. And then, of course, in return, the regional committees are reporting to our global proxy committee, which really does the kind of view from 60,000 feet. It's chaired by our CIO, Paul Quincy, Uh, And he really sets the sort of high-level agenda for the regional committees for the coming year. Eileen, you mentioned that the guidelines evolve. Can you discuss the most recent change to climate in our 2017 guidelines? We felt that the time was appropriate to increase the disclosure around our views on environmental issues. As you probably recognize, many shareholder proposals these days are referenced environmental issues, which is something we need to think about. So we wanted to provide a little bit more disclosure on how we would think about applying these shareholder proposals to the companies we invest in. And uh, so we embellished a bit on the language on how we would view those proposals. Again, it's always going to be case by case, but we think that the additional disclosure from our guideline policy is helpful for our clients to see. And I think it's really important. Um, We were discussing the other day and really bringing to life this case-by-case basis. Two energy companies, one where we voted for the proposal, one where we voted against because they had different time horizons in investment. One had 10 years, one had 30 years. So back to your previous statement, the impact on cash flows is really what we're thinking of as investors and as fiduciaries, and that always comes foremost. Absolutely. You know, certainly energy climate risk is a trend that we're seeing. Are there any other trends in shareholder resolutions that are prevalent today? I guess the first thing we should say is that shareholder proposals are a lot less common in markets outside of the U.S. Except Japan. There's quite a few in Japan. You're quite right. I stand corrected. You're absolutely right, Akiko. Uh, <laughs> and issues around... Akiko, what are some of... Maybe are they, are they in a certain area? Yes, it's interesting that uh, the uh, hurdle 
uh, to be able to place a shareholder proposal is actually quite low in Japan. So the length of ownership or the size of ownership, I think it's a lot less onerous to be able to uh, get your uh, proposal down in Japan. So virtually every single electric power company, there are shareholder proposals saying you know, nuclear power should be banned. Or, or there are other shareholders saying, you know, we want nuclear power because it is more carbon friendly and companies should, you know, resume a nuclear power generation as soon as possible. So it's really a free for all in a way. And uh, nuclear power is one issue that clearly gets uh, shareholders heated. Another area, would you believe, is uh, the banks are getting a lot of shareholder proposals at the moment. But they're very unusual proposals. Uh, uh, one shareholder is saying, you know, the Bank of Japan should be approached to change its policies. So the banks should, you know, actively engage with the Bank of Japan to make them change its mind. This is a rather odd thing to be including in a uh, shareholder proposal. But uh, as I say, because the uh, hurdles are so low, people are pretty free to say what they want in a way. It's a, a people with a view just put it down on the ballot. You know, there are some there are some markets where you do get some very funny proposals from time to time. We had one just one quarter for a Swedish company, another market with a low threshold, where an individual shareholder uh, asked the AGM to consider better broadband connection to his home. So you do get a, a kind of funny range. But Akiko illustrated a very important point on the nuclear issue. The challenge for us as a as a as a large asset manager with a broad subset of clients is. You know, the G piece to an extent is easy. We can all agree what constitutes a good governance framework. It's, you know, independent boards, it's transparency and communication, it's alignment of compensation, and it's shareholder rights. But the E and the S can be a lot harder. We've found on a lot of these issues that, you know, in our client constituency, they may have very different and sometimes diametrically opposite views on issues like alcohol or nuclear power. And for that is for that exact reason that outside of the segregated clients who uh, we tend to focus on the materiality of the ESG risk. What is the likelihood that these risks can impact the reputation or the share price of companies and, and by extension, the, the jeopardize future cash flows, which is all what we're about at the end of the day is generating, you know, risk adjusted returns in the in the long run for our clients. So on that topic, it is possible that we could agree with a proposal in principle, but still vote against the resolution. That's correct. Yes, that is that is correct. Um, some of the proposals, while the objective of the proposal one might agree with, the wording of some of these proposals could be quite onerous in terms of how a company could comply. And so in the U.S., many of the shareholder proposals are non-binding. However, if they receive more than majority support, the company is forced to either address it or adopt it. Otherwise, a next year's vote on the board, and shareholders will take action against the board for not adopting it. So we have to be careful that uh, the proposal, while the principle might be the right direction, the wording of the proposal might be very punitive to the company to adopt. I find that very interesting. Okay, you know, wrapping up here, if you had to leave the listeners with one final knowledge or piece of advice, what would that be? Akika, let's start with you. Okay, I would just say that it really, as uh, I think both Eileen and Rob have said throughout this conversation, this is an ongoing, evolving process. It's not something that 
uh, we come up with one fancy, clean answer. You know, companies change, issues change. So we have to be on the alert and we have to engage with companies to see how they are adapting to those issues. So I think one message I would have is to say that there's never a dull moment doing E, S or G because there's always something that we need to be discussing with the company. So it's a never-ending dialogue, I guess, is what I probably feel like saying. I guess if I had to pick one thing is impressing upon companies that they're not operating in a vacuum. They're operating in a society of shareholders and employees and suppliers and communities and regulators who want them to see, see them behaving responsibly in the long term. We think about sustainable as in the sense that they will still be here in the next 20, 30 years and engage and understand your companies. There's always more room for more conversations and more discussions so we can understand each other's position. From my perspective, I would like to leave the audience with the understanding that this firm, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, takes this issue quite seriously and has a very deliberate and deep approach to these issues. We have always worked with our investors over the years to make sure we get the answer as close to right as we possibly can. We're not perfect in this. But we do pay a lot of attention to the issue and always uh, with the best interests of our investors as the final deliberation. Rob, Akiko, and Eileen, thank you for joining us on Insights. Thanks for having us. It's been my pleasure. It was really great to be part of this dialogue. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on June 8th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. 
In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.